Let's get the crypto bad boys out of our system before we get to the real news. I was quite interested when I heard that Sam Bankman-Fried's bail guarantors were a secret. I thought, who could they be? And their names had been revealed, and it was so anticlimactic. Two academic people, friends of his family, they didn't really seem to be connected to any other crypto or other external things. It just seemed that SBF has been coasting on his family connections the entire time. It's quite a family friend when you're willing to sign a $500,000 unsecured bond. I mean, that's... Wow. And I think the other the other individual signed a $250,000 bond or something like that. Those are good friends. Those are the kind of friends you keep around. And how exactly does that add up to a $250 million bond? Not clear on that. I did have it explained to me at one point, but it just sounded a lot like fractional reserve banking. I just kind of, I just really glossed over. I was like, what? Really? Um, you know, the other thing that, that I think strikes me here is it's it seems like there's a lot of folks from this milieu that are associated with SBF. And I wonder if these individuals, if we did a little digging, if we'd find that they were also involved in that uh, altruism belief system that Sam supposedly had. Sam gave a bunch of money to his brother, which of course was stolen from FTX depositors to do some sort of effective altruism, maybe AI safety research. And I just think AI safety is so BS. It's like what rich people worry about. They don't worry about the poor. They don't worry about inequality. They're on top of society. They're living large. They worry about AI. And And meanwhile, we have towns in the United States with poisoned water. And it's really ridiculous when you think about it in that context. Well, it was amazing because there was that freight derailment in Ohio, which is basically, why did that happen? Well, America is a corporatist state and the rail company, I think Southern something, lobbied against any sort of safety investment, any sort of rules about how they could put dangerous carcinogenic explosive chemicals in tankers and then run them through towns. You can throw some shade on Canada as well because they were following a maintenance practice that basically justified minimal maintenance practices that was developed in Canada. Guess they're probably not so great up there either. (laughs) Sounds like it's just a bunch of excuses for barely investing in these trains and in the infrastructure. And then the question was, well, why is the media not covering the story? And then the next day, the same thing happened in Michigan. Another train derailed. I don't think it was a big explosion, but it was like another train of chemicals coming off the rails in Michigan. Again, in a working class town, because I thought I also heard of a derailment in Texas as well. There wasn't, again, a serious, but another derailment that occurred around the same time. Yeah, I was listening to the Jon Stewart podcast because John is a very kind of, I don't know, he's, he's socially active. He was actually a big proponent of getting ground zero responders in New York who were exposed to toxic dust after 9-11. They were completely hung out to dry, got no government support for their healthcare costs. And John was a big part of that. So he's really plugged into these issues. Splendora, Texas, northeast of Houston, Texas, is where the other derailment was. Yeah, so there was another one. Isn't this something? And, you know, I, I really think what we are seeing here, this is just my personal opinion, obviously, but I think industries throughout the airline, they've been, the airline industries have been having massive issues. Both the United States and Canada just did shutdowns recently. There was also another nation that just did an airline shutdown due to quote IT problems that just happened this past week. You have these trains that are derailing. We just saw months of issues in the trucking 
industry. And we hear of constant problems of employment issues, undercapacity and overworked truckers there. All of these different things suffer from a malinvestment in proper management, proper training and proper staffing. And they all suffer from the financialization of these companies where they've been doing stock buybacks. They've been blowing money to make their investors wealthy and they haven't been investing in the essentials of the companies. And meanwhile, the BS do nothing jobs at all these companies have exploded, but they haven't hired experts. They haven't fixed the fundamentals, just like the airlines haven't hired the right pilots. They've been losing pilots, right? We have this issue across all of these major indices, and it's all happening kind of right now because I believe it's essentially the third or fourth order effect from 13 years of really loose monetary policy. Well, I really want to get into that with you. Maybe we can put a pin in that for our economic section. Indeed. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on February 17th. 2023. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I am here as always with <laughs> me, Chris. Always? Well, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Always, sometimes. Occasionally seems like not enough. Mostly always, unless there's an, you know, maybe you're going somewhere. Maybe I'm going somewhere. You're trying to take a weekend away, and then you inevitably get sick for three days. Get the plague. Today, we will be covering some news about a hackathon focusing on Fediment technology. There are some really interesting potential use cases that came out of that. Some news about the creditors of Mt. Gox perhaps getting an early payout option. I think a lot of Bitcoin traders have been thinking about the price impact of that, but it's a really fascinating saga, the largest exchange failure in Bitcoin history. The Wall Street Journal has revealed that actually Bitcoin is controlled by six developers. So pack it in, party's over, it's not decentralized, we were wrong this whole time. Last episode, everybody, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Somehow, two open source enthusiasts missed the fact that six maintainers actually controlled Bitcoin. So we'll explain why that's completely wrong. In economic news, we have Lynn Alden's February newsletter. This newsletter comes out every six weeks, and it's just so great. It really makes me question getting a degree in economics. Maybe don't do that. If you're considering it, maybe just read Lynn Alden's newsletters. I think that would be a better use of your time. <laughs> and then in Bitcoin Optech, there is a lot there, Optech 238, but we're going to focus on a Bitcoin documentation search engine. Does that sound nerdy? Yes, it is. And then we will have some feedback and boosts. And that's our show. Heck of a show. Sorry for the holdover from the intro, but there is some news that the FTX bankruptcy judge has not supported the push to have an independent examiner, which can be an expensive process, but the independent examiner would go through with a fine-tooth comb all of the FTX business records, and this person would identify where money has been stolen and by whom, and try to recoup that stolen money. And in the process, they would also identify many of the other people other than Sam Bankman-Fried who looted FTX funds. So it would probably have a good kind of legal cleansing effect on what happened there. But this move to have an independent examiner has been rejected because it would be too expensive. You wouldn't want to have to be a big cost. I mean, we're just talking about $100 million of people's money. You know, we wouldn't want to waste that kind of expense. It's just silly. <laughs> it feels like they're, I don't know. I mean, I can see why the conspiracy people would already feel like somebody's trying to cover something up. We'll see. I think the judge is going to have to try to work on the optics of this case. I did see 14 hours ago that uh, Reuters re reported that the jubs, the jub, the judge said that they could conceivably have SBF's bail revoked. Maybe they'll try to play hardball here in a bit, or maybe they're just going to keep giving him softball after softball because 
he got in trouble for using a VPN. This is where this whole judge statement came from. And he said, well, I'm just using it to watch football in my parents' house. But he was banned from using a VPN as part of his bail condition, right? No, he's just using it to watch football. That's what he says. That's what he said. Maybe they start playing a little harder. I don't know. Maybe they're not. But the fact that they don't want to pay for an auditor to go through and not only figure out where all the money went, but figure out who else was involved. It it seems to me like just kind of an unorthodox decision because generally the court wants to find the people that broke the law. And so they do an investigation like this because there could be several other cases that need to be brought. And how are you ever going to make any customers even partially whole unless you get some of that money back? I just I can't really understand the logic. The, the cost of it, it would, it, what, $500,000? It's it's mostly payroll costs to do this. It, it seems trivial when you're looking at more than a $100 million loss of customer funds. It does feel like something is wrong with this process of uncovering corporate fraud. Maybe whatever the system of bankruptcy and fraud investigation, however it's built, it might not work very well. And there might be every incentive to say, hey, let's do a cursory job and move on because, you know, FTX, they bought a lot of services from financial firms and stuff. So maybe like we don't want to look too hard at this. We might discover our friends' names on this or something like that. I don't know. That's complete speculation. I'd love to have more transparency on this process. It's going to be a long, annoying process, right? We haven't even started really. This is still the pregame. And speaking of annoying, I feel like this leads into Lee Rainier's testimony at the Senate. Was it the Senate Banking Committee? Yeah, on the 14th of February. I really enjoyed reading this because it's a beautiful document, like a large, long form essay. You are a sick man. You know that? You know that? I Not only did I find this horrendously painful to read, but it is way too long. You like it for the exact reasons I can't stand it. <laughs> What's really interesting is I think that both of us have been looking for a good criticism of Bitcoin for 10 years or whatever, six or seven years in my case. And this is not it. Lee essentially takes very basic misunderstandings of Bitcoin and mischaracterizations and then puts a polished, academic, measured tone on top of it to argue for a ban on Bitcoin. He essentially is arguing for a ban on crypto assets because of FTX, really. He's just pointing out that there was fraud at FTX and somehow that means that crypto is illegitimate. He also does argue that proof of work he says, quote, is extremely energy intensive by design and contributes to carbon emissions, electronic waste, noise pollution and supply chain disruptions. At the same time, he acknowledges that crypto mining in the U.S. is a rounding error. It's maximum 1.7 percent of electrical usage. And that is a rounding error because the error bars on electrical usage are huge. And the highest guess for carbon emissions for the Bitcoin network are 25 tons a year. I'm pretty sure 25 tons a year is, you know, a couple families, basically. But I don't know if that was globally or just in the US. But I think he is trying to use data that can be cited. And so he comes up with these incredibly underwhelming numbers to sort of speak to the fact that the electrical usage and carbon footprint aren't really an issue. What's the real issue here? And the real issue is everything that Lee says Bitcoin is not good for. He points out that it is just used for speculation. Okay, so it's a savings technology like the stock market, like the bond market. Why is competing with those markets so bad? Then he points out that actually 
many non-white Americans invest in crypto and they're being hurt by crypto because they're losing money. So he's identified that the traditional financial system is inequitable and doesn't provide equal access to people of color versus Lee and people who look like him. And that's bad because they're getting hurt by this new thing that gives them more access. You know, I mean, there is some tortured logic here and there's some, some assumptions. Because they're obviously trying that because the existing system hasn't worked for them. And you know what else hurts people of color? 7% inflation. Lee doesn't mention that, though. But I think there are some legitimate concerns that integrating volatile crypto assets into a fragile financial system needs to be thought about. At the same time, I'm not seeing, you know, a very nuanced or interested look at that. What I'm seeing here are smart people who have gotten very wealthy in an existing inequitable financial and economic and social system, getting a little triggered by an alternative and throwing everything they've got at why this is bad and needs to be regulated out of existence. They truly are throwing everything they've got at it. This is also, it serves as a great example of why you got to check sources on this stuff, because he he states these things in here about proof of work. And he, he has, there's paragraphs in here that I believe we will see cited as examples of Bitcoin's environmental harm for years to come, because there is now enough of this type of these type of papers and testimonies floating around out there that there is a large body of source material for people to get clips from and to take statements from. And they never have to go all the way down to the sources. But if you drill all the way down to the sources, his information here about crypto mining exacerbating the global shortage of semiconductor chips, you go look at you go look at the source for that. And it's a Forbes article. Uh, same thing with the, the environmental stuff. It's a paid Forbes article that the uh, consensus people had put on Forbes to talk about the environmental advantages of proof of stake. And he's using that as his source to cite the environmental impact of proof of work. The source is completely unreliable and untrustworthy and is essentially a paid chill piece. But he just, you know, marks it as a number in the paragraph as he goes along. And you have to actually go down to there and verify the sources. And people don't and they won't. And so they'll take these paragraphs and they'll cite them as, well, look, this was in the Senate Banking Committee's testimony by this very intelligent person. Yeah, CryptoNews.net made it in there. That's a very legitimate source of information. Yeah, you like that? Here's the killer. And it's the last paragraph, last page. He's talking about stable coins and how he is in favor of strict stable coin regulation that would treat stable coins as money market funds. And this is interesting because it reveals his US centric viewpoint because essentially the dollar system works fine for Lee and everyone in the Senate banking chamber. And so the use of stable coins as a lower cost, more accessible financial payments network is just, he doesn't care. He doesn't at all think about the use in the developing world and what that means about uh, people's access to money and financial services. In his last paragraph, rather than force stable coins into the banking system, Congress can grant the SEC the authority to regulate them like money market mutual funds with strict requirements that stablecoin reserves be held in cash and U.S. treasuries. This is, I think, is the money shot because I don't know if Lee has thought this through, but Lynn is going to make the argument in her newsletter that there needs to be a massive new issuance of treasuries going forward over the next decades. And we need places to put that. And if stable coins can be a place to put that, then I think we will see the U.S. embrace a regulated stable coin model that will stuff those stable coin reserves full of U.S. treasuries. That said, it'll probably make them much less useful. And we have Bitcoin for that, I guess. 
So what do you suppose the impact of something like this, you know, going into the uh, Senate Banking Committee? It's pretty harsh. It's it's a basically a 33 page takedown of crypto, except for stablecoins. Great. Does this move the needle any in any way? I, it feels like what we're seeing here is so this this hearing was held on the 14th. There was lots of testimony. I read through parts of the transcript. You know, some of our favorites showed up. Senator Warren showed up to tell us all how dangerous and scary crypto is. The professor gal from the last test uh, Senate hearing that had just completely wrong information about the way Bitcoin nodes work. Her testimony has been cited now as like evidence and, and fact and proof in this most recent Senate hearing. It's really gross because she just completely botched how consensus works on the Bitcoin network. And now they just cite it as that's the way it works because their previous expert said so. Um, and I just wonder, are we are we just fumbling and bumbling our way into some kind of, I guess, altcoin regulation where essentially we'll have securities that get enforced? I mean, what, where's, what's the end result of this and all this kind of off the mark information that Congress seems to be getting? Do these testimonies sway the discourse or do they reflect a foregone conclusion? I'm not sure. My sense is that we are moving into this now they fight you stage a little. And we've seen waves of this previously, like in, I want to say, 2015, when a lot of Bitcoin businesses were debanked. Now we're going to see crypto businesses being debanked. There's going to be a wave of that because Lee talks a lot about how you can use existing regulation to essentially do an operation choke point two that squeezes any kind of crypto-y, Bitcoin-y business out of the financial system by essentially threatening the banks that provide services to crypto businesses with further scrutiny or review of their banking charter. And so it's a way to do an end run around Congress and attempt to just create so much friction that this thing goes away. I would also argue that we're seeing friction come from the legal system where they can as well. We don't know, but I think you and I both suspect that local Bitcoins was under probably a lot of pressure from either the Department of Justice or the FBI directly. And one of the reasons they're going away is because local Bitcoins kept showing up in these cases. So I think you have both the banking sector and the legal sector applying as much friction as they can. Which means open source alternatives to banking and financial cash, digital cash platforms are really important. And that's where Fedi, the company that is attempting to commercialize some of the tools and ideas behind Fediments, comes from. Well, the way I think of Fediments is kind of at the high level. I think kind of this is what we need to solve several end user problems, like local banking communities that, like you said, are self-hostable, that are open source. But also, I think long term, when we think about how people are going to hold their Bitcoin and why a lot of people feel like they want to store it on exchanges, the Fedi system could also offer solutions there, maybe like some custody solutions that are helpful for people that are worried about just losing all of their coins. So I think of Fedi is kind of like a system that's going to build solutions that make Bitcoin available to like the next several million users. It's pretty clear that banking and custody are going to be a part of any financial system. So how do we do that in a way that minimizes trust and protects users of this service as much as possible? And so Fediments do this by creating eCash. eCash is this idea from the 90s where you have something like a bank, 
But unlike a regular bank, eCash uses cryptography and math to ensure that the transactions that happen between account holders are perfectly private. So you know how much money is in the bank, but you don't know who has it or what they're doing with it. And this is a really interesting technology because if you think about traditional banking, they have full visibility to all transactions and all counterparties. So Fediment technology really loves Bitcoin because Bitcoin doesn't have counterparty risk because transactions are final. This means that um, you don't need to know who you're transacting with to ensure that they're reputable and will actually pay because the transaction actually settles. Whereas traditional banking, there's a lot of trust involved in every transaction because they t- transactions take so long to settle. Your credit card transactions take at least 28 days to settle. An ACH transaction between two bank accounts technically, I think, takes two years to settle fully. Wire transfers, you know, they take seven days to arrive sometimes, but they can take much longer than that. And sometimes the finality is not absolute. So there's a lot of vagary here. And the traditional financial system gets around that by monitoring every transaction and user and trying to kind of prevent people from doing things that might not work or might be dangerous before they do it. Whereas with Fediment, the technology enables the custodian to cryptographically demonstrate that no one's withdrawing their money twice or double spending or doing bad behavior like that. And they can give users privacy because it doesn't threaten their business model. And there's recently been a bit of a hackathon going on and the Fetty folks are announcing who the winners are, which I think is why this showed up on your radar. And the first place was a stability pool protocol, which is a way to essentially extract US dollar or like lock Bitcoin or eCash into a US dollar value. There's some risk there. There's a potential volatility. There's kind of, you can't take a one-to-one value exchange. You kind of have to stake or, or risk a little Bitcoin to unlock maybe half the US dollar value and hope that the volatility doesn't wipe out your position. But this is a way to use Bitcoin to create synthetic dollars that enable interaction with a dollar-based financial world. So does it hold the Bitcoin sort of as collateral? I think it's probably very similar to the Bitcoin Beach Wallet's stable sats protocol, where when you enter into this protocol, you're selling the upside of your Bitcoin to someone and they are hedging you against a potential downside. This only works in a custodial situation, but it could be very useful, especially if you need to transact in dollar value, but the dollar financial rails aren't working for you and Bitcoin is kind of your best option there. All right. Well, that's great to see. Yeah, there looks like there's several in here, but they get 210 million Satoshis for that. That's great. Nice. So it's awesome to see developments being built on Fediments, and I hope to be using a Fediment for something in the near (laughs) future. It's funny because I was thinking about thinking about just the next wave of, you know, not early adopters. You know, if you look at that, the the different market segments and how you have early adopters and you have regular adopters, then you just kind of have the whole long tail. And that long tail is going to need all kinds of options and solutions. The more we build, the more people we can reach. Now, you remember the Mt. Gox failure. You lost money in that, right? I did. I don't actually really recall how much because I don't want to think about it much, but it it was more than a few Bitcoins. And at the time, my sense, because this was before my tour of duty in Bitcoin, I believe there was a feeling that maybe Bitcoin would not recover. Yeah, I think a lot of people burned out after for the Mt. Gox failure. So what was that, 2014? And then the other thing that I think is, I always associate with the same time period, is it was, if you think about it from a burnout standpoint, this is also when we saw 
Like a year later, Ethereum came out, but we just saw a lot of discussions about what are we going to do for exchanges? Can we have decentralized exchanges? What are we, how can we solve this problem? And it looked so unsolvable, that particular issue, that it felt like even if Bitcoin wasn't done, we were never going to really solve the exchange problem. And then to see these other altcoins start coming up a little while after that too, it just felt so demotivating. And like, not only had we not solved the problems with Bitcoin, but now we were setting off and creating all these other projects and dispersing the effort and the, the work. And I just, that was really hard for me to watch. So I think that the news is just an excuse to talk about Gox because it was a hack that stole 850,000 Bitcoin. So largest Bitcoin hack by number of Bitcoin, even though later hacks had a higher dollar value. But it's really an interesting history. There are a lot of characters involved. Jeff McCaleb, the serial, can I call him a scammer or will he sue me? I think you mean entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. <laughs> He's a serial entrepreneur who created Mt. Gox as a Magic the Gathering card exchange, traded Bitcoin on it. It was insolvent when he sold it to Mark Carpellis. Is there anything nice to say about Mark Carpellis? Is like idiot just the nicest thing you can say about him? Or I wonder, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, he would say he was naive at the time. Naive. Yeah. Uh, criminally naive Mark Carpellis, who did go to jail in Japan. I don't know if that was fair or not, but the exchange was bankrupt for a long time. Mark bought it and just somehow kept it afloat. It was a total joke. It kept on getting hacked. And do you remember that Mark showed up as the CTO of that IRC service? Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And a couple other companies kind of behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Freenode. Freenode. Right. Is that still around? I think. I, I think. I don't think it's doing great, though. I just remember that CEO who was also a crypto guy doing that thing where someone criticizes him and he's like, no, you're wrong and you're just jealous of me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, there's a group of them that have, you know, some money and a few companies that they've tried and crypto adventures and things like that. And um, old Marcus, or however you say his name, Mark, is still kicking around behind the scenes there. I think it's cool to bring up because there's a link to kind of a history of Gox if you have it, if you're not familiar with it. But Bitcoin has experienced some huge events that should have killed it. Everyone thought would kill it. So we're in the midst of kind of a financial regulation crackdown. And I think that Mt. Gox is good context on how big or how small a deal this current crackdown is relative to what's happened before. To me now, looking back at it, it feels like the reason why it was such a big deal then is because it had such a significant, significant impact on the price and such a high percentage of holders had it there at Mt. Gox. But these days, you just like you don't really see that kind of thing. Like FTX went down and it did have some impact on Bitcoin's price. But overall, so I think it's recovered. Bitcoin's a cockroach, maybe hard to kill. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Tell you what, a wolf spider? Ugh, no. But is it decentralized is the question. No, didn't you hear? No, in fact, show's over because it's only just a handful of developers. You know, actually looking at this guy's case in the Wall Street Journal, I think it's actually a security. You know what? I think we had it wrong this whole time. So what Paul Kiernan of the Wall Street Journal is saying is that if you go on to GitHub and you look at the Bitcoin Core repository, you can see that actually the merge requests, the changes to the Bitcoin code are approved by a small group of software developers known as maintainers. And these maintainers are actually approving, quote unquote, the changes to the Bitcoin code in the Git repo. And so they're in 
charge of Bitcoin. And any change they make will determine what software we run on our nodes. And therefore, that's Bitcoin. So they're in charge, right? Yeah, clearly that's how open source software works. You know, there's this uh, small project that only has a few core contributors as well called the Linux kernel. And I think it's also the same thing, because if you look at it, there's actually, if you look at, say, like, say the 519 Linux kernel, there's actually only like two people that were responsible for the majority of the code commit. So clearly two people developed the Linux kernel. Just to drop our sarcastic tone, that is preposterous. The Linux kernel is one of the largest software projects in human history. And it, it involves, is it millions of lines of code? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how could two people be making changes and, you know, maintaining millions of lines of code? Obviously, they're not. The way that these projects work is there's a group of people who handle the insertion or the 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 kind of rectification of changes into the existing code. They're, they're called maintainers. And it's like being a janitor. It's not a glorious job. It's not necessarily even super fun because what's really fun is writing new code, whereas the maintainer is more of like an editor who's making sure that it doesn't, you know, clip the old code and create issues and bugs. But in the case of Bitcoin, what else are they missing here? Because if let's say there's a bad maintainer who wants to add a KYC protocol into Bitcoin and they they force it in in the Bitcoin core repo. Uh oh, is Bitcoin dead? Do we all have to run it now? Well, I mean, clearly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's in fact, I think we've all been scammed already. I thought we were dropping the sarcastic oh, tone. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I find this thing so frustrating because it's like people come at it at an angle and they get the result they're looking for. It's so obvious this is how open source projects work. Like, let's go back to that Linux kernel example. I was using Linux 519. 2,086 different developers contributed to Linux 519 individually. 2,086 just to that one release, right? But a couple of maintainers, a handful of maintainers actually submitted the patches or did the code review and submitted that. And it's always been that way. It always has worked that way. That's how you scale these projects. That is not unique to Linux. That is not unique to Bitcoin. But somehow this person writing for the Wall Street Journal misses that. And how does that even happen? I find it an exercise in frustration because it it gets linked around. I actually had somebody send it to me saying, saying, you know, well, look, this is a bit of a problem, don't you think? And it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how open source projects are structured. If you think about how complicated a company is, how many layers of management and people doing specialized things, an open source project is like that. But instead of creating a physical product, they're creating code and it's highly specialized. It's a complicated machine that needs to work together. And there are many people doing different roles. And so if you look at the just merges of changes into the code, you will often find a very few number of people managing that process. And that makes sense because they specialize in merging code in and having the context around the code base where they understand how things interact generally so that they can sort of uh, guide this process of inserting changes. The changes themselves are created by hundreds of developers. And the second part of this is just because there's a change in the Bitcoin Core repository doesn't magically change all of the software running on every node around the world. I think that because many people have smartphones now 
and they often just have push updates enabled, their software is magically updating in the background. And that's great, right? It's nice to have fresh software. At the same time, what that means is your phone is reaching out to the Google or Apple servers and saying, hey, can I get the latest software? And that server is saying, here you go. And they could put anything onto your phone. They could give you any software. And maybe that's okay for your mobile phone because, okay, I trust Google. I trust Apple. They're probably not going to do anything too bad. I mean, that's debatable in my opinion, but most people don't have a problem with that. But with Bitcoin, there is no auto update. Auto update is actually in terms of sort of power, giving the power over your device to somebody else. Bitcoin has no auto update because in Bitcoin, you must decide to run the software yourself. And that's part of Bitcoin consensus. So we never have to update our nodes if we don't want to. We, if we don't want new features and we're happy with the way Bitcoin is today, we never have to update our node and we can just continue to use Bitcoin and ignore the Bitcoin core project, in my opinion. Do you, do you think I'm right on that, Chris, or am I overstating? I mean, that's it. That is the lesson of the block size war. And it's a great book, too, because it helps you really internalize that. Now, the other thing that I dislike about what Paul or whatever his name here has done in the Wall Street Journal is he's actually kind of undermining open source development as a whole because he raises questions. He's just it's literally raising questions. He's just raising questions about the conflict of interest of sponsorships of funding of open source developers. Uh, he says sponsors say one year grants for Bitcoin maintainers ranges from 100,000 to 150,000. Uh, and then he compares that to alphabet uh, wages, you know, maybe around 225,000 for an alphabet engineer. But he says, you know, this is this raises a real issue of influence by these companies. And here's why that's kind of insidious. First of all, the developer is still creating open source software, which is being reviewed by others. So perhaps that developer's goals and that business's goals align in this instance, and they work together. That's how businesses effectuate change in open source. That open source is reviewed by other contributors and is always open. It always remains there and reviewable at any point in time in history. And this is a really common way that open source development gets funded. In fact, it's one of the only ways, it's one of the very, very few ways, I should say, that open source developers can work full time. And this guy, just to kind of like, I guess, throw shade at Bitcoin and cast doubts about influence, throws this entire model under the bus. This is the same issue with Linux. It's the same issue with the Nginx server. It's the same issue with Plasma Desktop, right? It's like, this is how it works across the open source ecosystem. And this guy's dropping bombs just because he has to raise some questions. Right. It's like, hey, I'm just asking questions. Well, you don't even understand the issues involved. So maybe you need to read a book or talk to some people before you write an article. So maybe the theme of this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is people asking questions without understanding basics or you won't find good criticism here, maybe. You know what we're seeing? It's this example, just like the Senate testimony was credentialed experts who are confidently wrong about Bitcoin. We saw this with the Peter Zeal guy as well. They're confidently wrong. And so they project this real sense of a takedown, especially if you're somebody maybe coming into this looking for a little confirmation bias. They re it really kind of comes across as, well, look, he's got him here, he's got him here, he's got him here. But then when you sit here and you actually break it down, you realize what we're talking about here. Like at a certain point, he kind of goes after Bitcoin for not having a, quote, public relations department that Bitcoin can respond to concerns. Of, you know, it's like, do you get what an open source project is at all? He thinks it's a company. If you don't get what open source is, and I think that would be the vast majority, actually, this kind of seems like, well, it got him here a little bit. I mean, it got a, it got a listener of mine to link it to me and be like, hey, what do you think of this? Right. And 
I think we see now this new category of supposed domain experts who are very confident in what they say really blow it. And we have three examples right here in front of us just in the last couple of weeks. And you know what? It's a little frustrating because I would love a decent takedown. I honestly have been looking like you started this whole thing for years for a really adequate takedown. I'd love to know if we're wrong, right? It would be great to get someone smart to debunk Bitcoin and show me that it doesn't work. And actually, let me throw a friend of mine under the bus. We had an interesting conversation about this comparing because this person was uh, buying a altcoin that I won't mention that is, I mean, really in about 10 minutes of research, you can see that this thing is real garbage. And we were having this conversation about consensus and blockchains and scalability. But the thing is, it's quite hard to understand how these systems work. And this is an altcoin that essentially tries to pretend that it doesn't have a blockchain because it calls it something different. You know, it it calls it a a hashing system. Okay, I've given it away, but it's a, a hash graph. Okay, it's a fun- functionally a blockchain. There's a, there's a history, there's state, and this system actually is more centralized than I'd say even Solana because it runs on high performance nodes and it only has blessed nodes. And so, if you don't understand fundamentals around consensus and you haven't kind of thought about this thing, frankly, for years, you might say, "Well, this this thing is better because it has more capacity." But well, you know, you've got one entity that controls the whole thing. It can only be run in high speed in data centers, and so maybe it's okay for speculation briefly. But could this ever do do global money at a big scale? Of course not. Of course not. I think the other thing that we constantly lose track of, um, not you and I, but just technologically inclined people and uh, people who look at the features and capabilities of things like Monero users, (laughs) I think they lose sight of the fact that there is just a strong market demand for something that is trustable by people who don't trust each other and that is fully auditable and verifiable. Because if you look at the kind of fundamental problem that Satoshi was setting out to solve was alternatives to a system that is completely opaque, you can't trust it, and it's really, really just based on trusting the institutions themselves, which I think probably is at all-time low right now. Bitcoin kind of comes along and it's the trustworthy thing that is verifiable by math, right? It's it's not, you don't have to wait on, you don't have to rely on re- brand or reputation or institutional policies. You can have faith in math and and trust what it's telling you. And I think that is ultimately the killer feature of Bitcoin when it comes to sound money. And these other things just don't offer that level of kind of auditability, transparency, and accountability. I think it's just Bitcoin got there first. Bitcoin doesn't have a crew behind it. Satoshi isn't around. It is the only one that is truly distributed. And it now has that network effect. And you can have things like Hedera or whatever it's called, or you can have Salooner or whatever. Oh, man, you figured it out. They don't offer that killer feature that Bitcoin offers. And that's what I think the market truly needs. And it's not just today, but will more so over the next decade. And your reference to institutional trust is a nice lead in to Lynn Alden's latest article, which is fixing inflation. There's been this conversation where people on the Bitcoin gold side of the aisle tend to say inflation is coming, it's out of control. When it came in 2020 and 2021, these inflationistas, as they're dismissively called, felt vindicated. But now inflation is falling, at least the way it's measured via CPI. And so statements like transitory inflation that were made by Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, they seem slightly less ridiculous because maybe a year and a half of inflation is transitory. And now we're going to see inflation fall and prices will never go down, but the rate of inflation will fall. So maybe the Fed was right. And if the rate of inflation can fall, then 
how could these Bitcoin hard money, gold bug loving people be right? Because wasn't all this money created and now inflation's falling again. So what's going on? I think Lynn's article is should be just required reading for everybody because she really points out that high level, if we look at the history of inflation, inflation is not just a line that goes up. The inflation rate is very volatile. It has peaks and troughs. And you can only know if you're in an inflationary period when you look back. Because generally, inflation spikes and then it falls, you get a little deflation, you get a little bit of prices falling in some commodities like oil, price of oil went up, now it's gone down again, and then it just picks right up again. And so it's actually quite difficult to call inflation deflation because there are a lot of specific factors that affect this. And maybe you think, oh, well, this is a cop out. You know, you're just confusing with complexity and don't want to be called out as wrong. I don't think so. I think that Lynn is really onto something. And just because I love bringing up Jeffrey Schneider, Jeffrey Schneider has a different view. Jeffrey Schneider is sort of a structural deflationist. And I think that Jeffrey is also right. And the reason that Lynn, who believes that the next decade will be very inflationary, and Jeffrey, who points to structural deflation everywhere, can both be right, is because they're looking at different things. And so Jeffrey looks at a global euro dollar monetary system where dollars are needed to service debt all over the world. And this debt is just sucking up dollars when debt needs to be serviced and needs to be serviced in dollars. This is an impediment to using these dollars to create new loans. There already are a lot of loans out there. There's a lot of bonds out there that need to make interest coupon payments. And so you can lever up and build products on top of these financial structures, but we've already built a lot of financial leverage into this system. And since we can't add more leverage to that safely, the sort of growth of financial leverage is slowing, and this is structurally deflationary from Jeffrey Schneider's perspective. And I think he's right in many ways. Where Lynn looks at things is she says, listen, in the past, we can see that essentially government spending fuels inflation. And she breaks money into broad money and base money. I would say broad money is the type of money that Jeffrey Schneider is more focused on, which is primarily credit-based. It primarily is created through bank lending or other forms of lending. Whereas Lynn looks at the base money. Base money is created directly by the Federal Reserve and, and governments via either money printing or debt issuance. The federal government creates a bond, which is essentially a form of borrowing. The private market buys this bond. Then 10 days later, the primary dealer who bought it sells it to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve pays for this bond with digital dollars that were created out of thin air. This is debt monetization, and it increases the base money supply. And the base money supply is the foundation of broad money. So Lynn views base money creation as a forecast of future inflation, because it takes time for this money to sort of move throughout the world and raise prices as it moves through systems. So what does this mean? What it means is this is a US-focused analysis, but I think it's broadly true of most developed countries today. Lynn looks at the liabilities of the US federal government, and she sees a lot of liabilities. She sees high military spending, high 
pension costs via Social Security, Medicare, which is going to be paying for some of the health care costs for the baby boom generation. And she looks at government data. And this government data, which comes from many sources, including the Congressional Budget Office, it basically predicts that the federal deficit, which is currently around 5% of GDP, is going to increase to at least negative 10% by 2052. Well, 10% deficit, that's not so bad, right? Well, the thing is, we have to remember that this is compounding year on year. So if you think about how long it takes the federal debt to double at 5% increase year on year, well, just use the rule of 72. You divide uh, 72 by the interest rate. 5%, this gives you 10, 14 years-ish. Yeah, it gives you about 14 years the federal deficit doubles. That's actually a very high rate of increase in federal spending. And frankly, the Congressional Budget Office is really underestimating the increase in federal deficit spending because their projection does not take into account the fact that recessions accelerate deficit spending and we're probably about to have a recession. We're going to have more than one recession between today and the year 2052. So their projection is very rosy. But even though it's rosy, it shows a 45-degree line of federal debt held by the public increasing at a 45-degree angle over the next 25 years. Another issue is that a large portion of this deficit is driven by interest rates. And so if interest rates and raising interest rates are a necessary tool to curb inflation in the broad economy, this actually drives the U.S. government into increasing fiscal deficits. It's a vicious cycle. And Lynn, based on looking at historical inflation episodes, makes the prediction that maintaining high interest rates, which have a sort of uh, monetary contraction aspect that tends to reduce inflationary pressures in the broader economy, maintaining these high interest rates will not be feasible. They will need to go down to essentially allow the federal government to continue operation. And you might say, well, listen, you know, if the debt situation gets out of control, government will cut spending. They'll tighten their belts. They'll they'll do that. And I would say no freaking way, because the debt situation is so out of control already. We're at debt levels that were unthinkable in the 1990s. I mean, if you told politicians in the 1990s that by 2022, total debt to GDP in the US would be over 120% of GDP, they'd have laughed at you. They just said that's impossible. There'd be a currency crisis. Back then, they thought we wouldn't have made it that far. Right. We've already made it past the event horizon of this event, you know, and, and, and no one knows sort of what happens next. Well, this is why Jeff just talks about deflation and Lynn talks about inflation. She is looking forward a couple of years to the political responses to our current environment and saying, listen, spending has to go up. And if we look into the past, we can see that increases in government spending and running fiscal deficits are inflationary because that money gets into the economy and it doesn't necessarily go through the financial economy and pump asset prices directly like a lot of central bank interventions do. It actually goes through the physical economy, especially now that we've discovered the political crack cocaine of directly giving cash to voters. So I think that Lynn makes a very good case 
for inflation in the future. And she even has investing insights too. So if this is something that worries you, don't be worried. Read this article. And Lynn actually gives away a portfolio that she maintains for the public. And so if you, obviously, this is not financial advice, it's just something anything anyone can do. But if you want, you can actually just subscribe to Lynn's newsletter and buy her portfolio that she lists here yourself. And you essentially have a hedge fund manager for free. That is probably one of the best financial analysts in the world. I mean, wow, Lynn, she's great. Yeah, and she's had a point that I think she really kind of underscores in the February update, which is there will be these sort of periods, these valleys of inflation going down. But I, I, I want to I want to try to get your your help wrapping my head around something. So I guess we would be in a deflationary valley for the moment, but it doesn't feel that way, right? Like gas prices are still going up. It hurts every time I take the family out or just the wife and I even for Valentine's Day. That bill still really hurts. So it's not like the prices are coming down. So what are, what are we measuring? Just the rate at the increase has decreased? Is that what we're talking about here? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We are looking at the rate of increase, the first derivative of CPI. So we're just going to look at the, the price level today and the price level in three months, six months, a year, and look at the angle of the line between them. That's what we're talking about here. Prices are never coming down. Prices permanently move up. It just sort of is a frightening thought to think that maybe in five, six, seven years, I'll look back at the prices of things today and think that they were cheap when right now they feel very expensive. And that's why this is so complicated, because inflation, prices, what's cheap, what's expensive, these are subjective human viewpoints. And our mind is changing all the time. You know, sometimes I now spend $100 on a bag of groceries and I think, what a deal when that $100 would have bought my mother and I an entire overflowing cart of groceries 25 years ago. Gas at $3.60 a gallon feels like a fantastic deal now to me. The last bit I just want to mention, because you might miss it if you read the beginning of the article and then skip her portfolio updates, but Lynn has a little bit of a punch down at the end on anyone who says, well, what about Japan? Japan had all of these monetary interventions as a central bank with a massive balance sheet and they didn't have inflation. That's kind of a dumb statement because Japan is not a generalizable situation. It's a pretty weird place in many ways. And one issue in Japan is that, sure, the central bank accumulated huge numbers of assets on their balance sheet, but there wasn't a transmission of those financial assets and purchases into their economy. Wages in Japan have been decreasing since the 1980s. The minimum wage in Japan is about around $7 an hour today. So um, the, the other issue is that from the 90s to the 2020s, commodities have been very, very cheap. And Japan imports a huge amount of commodities, and then they manufacture those into higher value things like cars and cameras and stuff like that. So their economic model was actually quite successful in a cheap commodity, cheap energy environment. That's clearly not the case today. But maybe the wider view is that there's a very large political element to how inflation and monetary and fiscal policy affects society and affects wealth distribution. For some reason, Japan's political consensus is such that the Japanese public felt that their politicians were doing enough that they didn't need to be changed. They, for some reason, accepted very low wages in exchange for some of the social 
handouts and, and benefits that their politicians promised them. And there are many because Japan actually has incredibly good and cheap health care, which is hard to imagine in the United States, which has expensive and sometimes bad health care. So there, there are definitely benefits and trade-offs to every model. The U.S. model is quite extreme in that whenever there's an opportunity to do a bailout, sure, the poor and the middle class might get something, but 70% always goes to the upper class. That's just the American political consensus. Sure is. Seems to be the way the system's built. <laughs> and that's why I don't like the term money printer go brewer, because it's so much more complicated than that. And it also suggests that the problem is Jerome Powell with his money printer. But Jerome Powell doesn't really print money directly. He buys government debt with printed money. When the Fed starts buying government debt directly in treasury auctions and not letting it filter through the private market first, I would say that's closer to a real money printer. And who knows, maybe we'll see that in the next crisis. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good little tool that they could uh, deploy. This episode is brought to you by the self-hosted show, selfhosted.show. And it's a great, I don't know, podcast. So go listen to it. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say because it's my own show. I likes, I likes it. That's what I say. Selfhosted.show. It's really about data sovereignty or just check out all the great shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. At that last episode where Alex had a Proxmox cluster issue hit close to home because I run Proxmox as a home virtualization platform and it can go sideways sometimes. Yeah, the more complex you make it, too, the harder it can be to fix it. In this month's Bitcoin education, Bitcoin Optech 238 is a doozy, to quote Ned Niedermeyer in Groundhog Day. There are some continuing discussions about blockchain data storage, which I think were inspired by ordinals. Anthony Towns has a protocol about off-chain coin coloring, which is similar to ordinals, where you basically take a UTXO and using some off-chain software, you color that UTXO with additional data. So you can spend it like a normal Bitcoin transaction, but if you have additional software, you can infer more meaning to that transaction. And this is actually how RGB works and other protocols, um, inscriptions as well. But what kind of jumped out to me was way down at the bottom, Optech recommends bitcoinsearch.xyz, which is a search engine for Bitcoin technical documentation. So it searches Bitcoin Stack Exchange, the Bitcoin Talk Forums. I think this is really cool and really useful if you're learning about Bitcoin and want to research it on your own. And it's done so well, too. It's really neat. Definitely have to check it out. The URL is a little ridiculous. I guess you could just go to bitcoinsearch.xyz. You don't have to worry about the other parts. It'll, it'll redirect where you need to go. But this is great and fast, smooth, clean. Very impressed. I got all the, I got all the verbs. Yeah, it's <laughs> orange themed. So, you know, it's Bitcoin related. Right. Whenever you look something up, you realize you don't understand it the way you assumed you did. So really suggest that for Googling Bitcoin terms you might be interested in or not clear on. There'll be a link in the show notes to that. BitcoinSearch.xyz. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter, though I have not been on Twitter for a month, so I'm sorry if you sent me a message. Consider joining our show Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. Details in the show notes. Yes, we'd love to see you over there. There's a Bitcoin general discussion and a Bitcoin questions, if you're kind of getting started and have some questions. And uh, you can get server details at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix too. All right, so we got some boosts. And our first one actually comes in from Anonymous. I think they just didn't set their uh, username, but they sent 20,000 sats. 
Damn, the Bitcoin dad pod has converted me into a value for value maxi. More on the boost instead of streaming sats. I kind of tend to agree with Nick Sasbo on the mental accounting costs of micropayments being too high. Well, thanks for the boost, Anonymous. Thank you. There's a real easy math that I've started doing, and my wife pointed it out too when we were watching YouTube the other day. If somebody gives me really helpful information or content, I just want to send them a boost to say thanks. I'm listening to a podcast, and if I feel like they nailed something, I just send them a boost and I say thanks. Or YouTube is really where I could see this. I was looking for a video on how to do a little quick fix on the car. And this guy just had a great, clear, well done video. And after I'd gotten watching, I was like, gosh, I wish I could send that guy a boost. There's no, I don't, I don't find it mentally challenging. I th- in fact, I find it kind of uh, enjoyable. It's like I get a little, uh, little burst of joy every time I send somebody a boost. Right. I, I think that's what Anonymous is saying. Because when you, when you do like streaming sats, you kind of have to say, what's my budget for the month? And then I'll divide that between different shows. And so there's some thought there. Whereas with the boost, it's like reaching out to someone and saying, hey, great job. And also, here's a couple pennies or a dollar or five bucks. It's an act of passion. And it's weird because when from the outside looking in, when I heard about that, I thought, oh, that sounds so stressful. But now, you know, small amounts of money are small amounts of money. When you get into the habit of like spending a small amount of money just to send a boost, it's okay. It's nice. It's not a, you you know, you don't feel like, oh, I got to watch my budget on these boosts. No, I enjoy it. I get a thrill. friend of the show, Marcel Boussin, with 5,000 sats. I am not a RoboSats hater. Oh, sorry, Marcel. We, we got you <laughs> on that last episode. <laughs> you said you prefer lightning because it's cheaper to get the sats home. That was exactly my question. Don't you still need an on-chain transaction to get them into cold storage? Oh, that's true. So maybe we didn't understand that for you, it means getting it into cold storage. And that's true. Lightning is hot. It's a active online internet connected wallet. It's not cold storage. Are you buffering lots of small buys in a lightning wallet and doing one big on-chain transaction? Exactly. That's how lightning works. I like lightning for boosting and payments, but I don't see it for long-term storage. Totally agree. I, for one, like the dad only shows. Oh gosh, I didn't see that. I just said that. <laughs> throwing shade at me. He's throwing shade. At least I don't I don't get accused of being a hater. Smiley face. <laughs> I'm watching you, Marcel. I'm watching you. <laughs> no, I think he's got it, right? If you did want to sweep it to cold storage, I, I suppose you could probably queue it up like that and then sweep it every now and then. It kind of depends too on your workflow. Like if you're coin joining in there, it kind of already, you're already doing some of that to begin with. I have a jam server set up for, for that kind of thing. And you're kind of already eventually doing that. But what I would love, love, love is to see some kind of lightning integration with Sparrow eventually. You know, maybe I can connect it to my node. I don't know exactly what it would look like. I would fricking, fricking, can I just say one more time? Fricking love if I could go from lightning to Sparrow and maybe Sparrow does the on-chain while it's doing a coin join first or something like that. Oh, I'd love that workflow. But for me, it's a great way to buy some spending sats. It's a great way to um, get something that's non-KYC that isn't as complicated and as ridiculous as BISC. BISC is only viable in a tech community. It's one of these, it's, it's, it's a great example, again, of where I think here in the tech community, we can easily overlook the challenges, like just, just the fact that BISC works the best if you leave it running all the time. So you want to have it on a dedicated machine. Just an end user figuring out how to prevent their machine from going to sleep is a barrier to entry to using BISC. It is so much more complicated than tech people realize. Um, so that's where I just, I just think there's very little 
uh, value in me advocating for the use of it because it's mostly going to cause people to get turned away, find it too complicated and probably lose their money than it is for most people. Feel discouraged. That's true. Yeah, it, it is. It is a challenge. I mean, it's a great app and I, I'm very grateful it's available and I'd love to see it get developed further. But the usability between BISC and RoboSats is like one is I think you could show an average person how to use it and they could have success. And another is just wrought with peril. Yeah. I mean, and BISC is designed like the Bitcoin network. It's a network of nodes. It's completely decentralized. It's almost like to shut it down, you need to shut down the internet kind of feeling. And that's amazing. It's just hard to use. You know, I have RoboSats installed on my node. It's all, you know, it's all very like uh, easy to use. The UI is simple and it's using my node as the source of truth. I like it. It's a good middle ground. But I agree that if you um, don't use much lightning, there is that whole that whole barrier. So I get that part to it as well. I wish we had more options, to tell you the truth. I wish there was more just go give them your dirty fiat and they give you sats. And there wasn't the whole KYC thing, but it's not the world we live in. Everyone should read more Greg Egan Busin with 11,101 sats. Hey guys, love the show. Here's a question. Is there any reason not to coin join? I've coin joined some small amounts, but I'm hesitant to coin join my cold storage out of fear that something like tornado cash could happen and blacklist coin join Bitcoin. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think Greg Egan is an Australian science fiction writer, but I've never read. Thank you for the boost. So I think we discuss this periodically. And the answer is, who knows what's going to happen? It's very possible that venues like Coinbase and Kraken will be legislated such that they cannot touch coin-joined funds. Or if you do send coin-joined funds to them, you may have to provide disclosures and you know write a form about where you got it from. That is totally par for the course because that's a regulated on-ramp and it's like a bank. It's essentially subject to banking laws. So if your future state of Bitcoin is you're going to send it to an exchange and sell it, then coin joining will provide you temporary privacy in that there won't be a direct line from your buys to your wallet. And depending on how you bought it, your name might be associated with those buys. So if you have to wait 20 years before you sell your Bitcoin on Coinbase to buy your Lamborghini or whatever you're going to get, then during that period, if you haven't coin joined, if there's a data leak on the exchange where you bought those funds, there might be a list with your name, address, and the amount of Bitcoin. And if we can look on chain and see that those UTXOs haven't moved, then now there's, you know, there's going to be people who could be thinking about coming to your house and requesting your Bitcoin from you in an aggressive manner. If you coin join those funds, I think it kind of protects you from that situation. And in the future, if you have to KYC again to sell, well, I mean, I don't really see the problem. Maybe they'll just say we won't accept coin join funds and then you'll have to learn how BISC works or RoboSats or something. I personally believe there's going to be a lot of peer-to-peer demand Bitcoin in the future because I think that financial regulation, tax law, anti-money laundering, the trend of all of these things is making traditional finance worse and harder to use. So I think that at a certain level of friction, peer-to-peer becomes a much more attractive option. So I am a big proponent of CoinJoin. I think that in the situation where CoinJoin hurts you, the financial system is already so weaponized against you, you're going to be hurt anyway. And so the benefits of privacy from CoinJoin that you get in the meantime are worth it. But that's just my opinion. I kind of think about it too from a, what do I want to do with my coins long-term standpoint? And I, like you said, I don't think I see myself sending them over to Coinbase to sell. At most, I could see them in some sort of multi-sig where 
somebody can verify that they're there and, you know, maybe like some sort of me and a third party are doing some sort of weird multi-sig so that way I could use some for collateral. I don't know. I could see that. I don't think coin joining would impact that. But here's my question to you, Dad. Is this a problem you think he needs to worry about now? Because what would be the harm of him just leaving his KYC coins in storage other than the security aspect, setting that aside that somebody might come knocking on the store and then just coin joining them in the future if he wants to spend them? Is that a possibility? Do you think the threat model should include loss of the ability to coin join at some point in the future? I think that's a possibility. I think also the sooner you coin join, the more plausible deniability you have. Because if you coin join right now and then I come at you five years later and I'm the IRS and I'm like, well, you know, now the rule is all the coins have to go to the government wallet and you get a claim on that. If you get that notice and then you coin join the coins, and you're like, whoops, I don't have them. I'm going to say, okay, jail time for you. But if I come at you and say, hey, uh, seems like you bought some coins on Coinbase 10 years ago. And you say, oh, you know, I actually, uh, I lost those like five years ago. And they'd be like, okay, do you have the UTXO history? And, we, and I'll be like, no. And they'll, and they'll look on chain. And they'll see that they went into a coin join. And they'll be like, what happened here? And you could say anything. You could say, I sent them to a coin join. And then I bought a bunch of drugs. And then I used the drugs. And they say, they might say, okay, well, you have to pay some taxes now. And okay, fine. Or you might say, I don't know. I think I got hacked or something. Often hackers send a coin join. So who knows what happened? But the, I think the, the temporal distance, there's more activity on chain. That's a great point. It's just my sense that it gives you kind of more space. The other thing, too, is it seems like I think one of the things we forget about coin joins, it's not free. It's sort of like you could be sitting on a bunch of sats, think you have a certain amount, but then if you actually coin join them, you know, you have to you have to deduct some of that. <laughs> I don't know. It's almost easier to eat that up. At front. least one percent <laughs> less or something. Yeah. 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 It's almost it's easier to just eat that as you go and not like pay a huge bill one day. Um, I don't know. Of course the Bitcoin network is always gonna have different levels of activity as well. So it does I think I agree. It does seem logical that you'd want to do the coin join sooner than later. In my opinion, I think you really want to do it before it enters cold storage. And I think if you have a situation where somebody won't accept a coin joined Bitcoin, you could still potentially sell your coin joined Bitcoins to somebody else who would accept it and buy Bitcoin that is not coin joined or something. Right? You, there are options that would be available to you. Bob B boosts in with 2000 sats. Still trying to wrap my head around lightning channel management. Is there any service out there that will accept Bitcoin and forward them to your lightning node targeting a specific channel? This way you can move the sats back to your side of the channel. Or am I conceptualizing this incorrectly? No, you've actually got it perfect. I think that's called loop back. Yeah, where you open up a channel and you put sats on one side and then you create a loop. You generally have to have another channel to do this, but you create a loop and get the and when you do this loop, you can set how many sats you want to end up on the other side of the channel. Lightning Labs does this as a service too. There's several. There's like also Lightning Plus now that does this as a service as well, which I've been experimenting with, where you um, they facilitate a uh, channel opening between at least three nodes and as, up to as many as five, where each of the pe people in this Lightning Plus group open an inbound and outbound channel to each other and kind of create this spoke of uh, machines. And you just go in there and say, you know, I have this many sats, so I'm looking for this capacity. And you look to see if anybody's offering, and then you can join it right there. And it'll, it'll open up the channels and everything. It's really slick. It's Lightning Plus. So easy. And it's in the Umber Lab Store as well. And Bob continues, is there any way to have reoccurring scheduled boosts? Reason I'm asking because I'm addicted to the 
features of my podcast player, which unfortunately does not support the ability to stream sats. I always listen to your podcast, so I would love to make sure to send some love automatically. Well, that is so nice of you, Bob. I really appreciate the sentiment. And Chris, you've dropped in Oak Home, which seems to do exactly that. Yeah, it's the, the page is not super obvious, but if you dig around on their site, you can see some screenshots and it'll let you set up a scheduled SATS payment. Let me give it the destination, the amount, the schedule you want to run on, and it will give you kind of a little GUI that lists them for you. And you can check in on their status and it has a little web front end for all of that. And it's also an app in the Umberlap store and it's just Oak, O-A-K, and you install that and then you give it in, you would give it, uh, it shows lightning node address. You could put mine in there too if you'd like. And then uh, it'll send it off at your uh, beck and call. It's nice. And I think it's a great option for those that don't want to switch, uh, but want to do a reoccurring payment. And I, I, I love the idea of this because one thing that we don't really have a solution for with lightning yet is sort of the membership kind of system where you get a username, then you, you know, every time, as long as you're paying, it's active and you can log in and you get access to exclusive content. And I think with things like Oak and other systems, we're going to get there where like a lightning payment unlocks the system for a while. And I, I love the idea of Oak as an experimentation towards that step, but also it's just a great way to just do reoccurring support. And there's no middleman. Yeah, that's super cool. I, I had no idea. And uh, we'll put a link in the notes for that. It's oak-node.net if you want to check it out. Anonymous comes in with a thousand sets. Thanks for adding chapters to the 2.0 spec. It's been working great on Podverse now. And thanks, as always, for being the bestest Bitcoin podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Anonymous. Amir Mortals podcast boosts in with a row of sticks, 1,111 sats. I really enjoy chapters as well. Would be great if you could add images. I like having that extra visual element when you're talking about a person or a graph as you do quite often. Mm, God, that would be cool. Yeah, I think this is why a lot of podcasts went to YouTube and became terrible podcasts because they have chat and, you know, they, I, podcast editing is so hard. So, like, the quality just drops on YouTube because they just stream it directly. They talk about little things that are happening in the moment, like, oh, can you move your mouse? I can't see this, you know, and that makes it onto the podcast. It, I, it drives me crazy. So, the podcasting 2.0 chapter spec makes it totally viable to, th- to show pictures at a certain point that you could be, you know, we could, we could put up a Lin chart or something like that. The work to do that is hard to overstate. It is surprising how long it takes to track those little things down, get the right picture at the right size, the right, you know, tr- crop, and then to find the time in the show, put it in there after the fact. That's why I think, you know, you see, you see some of the podcasting tuto shows do it, but they have their community members that are doing that for them. And so the downside to that is sometimes the chapters don't show up until several days after the episode's out. Whereas with the method with just plain text chapters, you can at least, ha- you at least have it when the show actually ships. It's a tricky one, though, because I was just thinking this morning from time to time, it'd, it'd be worth it to show an image every now and then. Yeah, I mean, if there was a podcasting 2.0 audio editor or a plugin for existing editors that kind of made this easy. I would buy it. There's also the element of you need to have all of the assets up on cloud storage that's uh, accessible to the world over HTTP, right? It's got to be the images have to be up somewhere that the podcast player can pull from. You have to kind of figure out, well, where where would you dump? Say you had five images for the show. Where would you dump them where they could just be H- accessible over HTTP? Where would they even go? My instinct would be to try and self-host it on the uh, bitcoin.pod.com website, which is a website that I updated once, I think. Yeah, you could drop them in a folder on there. You know, but my point is you just kind of have to figure, you have to build that infrastructure. You, it doesn't just like get baked into the MP3 or something. And then you discover that actually that small nanode will just get slammed and, you know, knocked <laughs> offline if a thousand 
people download the images or something. And then, yeah, yeah, that is a thing too. Because when the show just comes out, you have a lot of people hitting it at once. But it's not to say it's not worth doing from time to time. It just is going to take some experimentation to figure out the workflow, I think. Mirror Mortals continues with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. What's the rationale for trying to raise the unemployment rate? Is this a weird US thing or would that happen here in Australia as well? Must be an odd position to be the person trying to make more people jobless unless it is a voluntary type of jobless. So the rationale is that the major driver of inflation is actually workers requesting higher wages. So if you kill the economy a little and make the job market very difficult and drive people out of work, they'll accept lower wages. You also then get demand suppression as well. Right. And so, yeah, this is a pretty anti-human, frankly, kind of evil policy. And you would only implement a policy like that if you were part of the country's elite who structurally just can't even conceive of the hurt and harm they're causing and are incapable of caring because they don't know any of the people who are being driven out of work because they just hang out with rich people in rich places and so can't really empathize with the people they're impacting. And it's not like they have to worry about the media running a story 24-7 about how they're destroying purchasing power and making life harder for the middle class and how the middle class are paying for policy actions by the elite for the last 30 years. Like if the media was making that their top story and, and, and discussing the economic disparity that these policies create, they'd be feeling at least some heat. But instead, they don't. That's not a situation. They don't have to worry about that kind of exposure. They don't have to worry about uh, any reputational harm. In fact, uh, if Jerome is successful, he'll be considered one of the one, you know, probably one of the best Fed presidents ever. People are maybe not so interested in hearing the story of how they're getting slowly chipped away at in terms of inflation, purchasing power, and the social distribution of wealth, because what are you going to do about it? Well, Bitcoin's here. And that is why Bitcoin does have a political dimension, because when you opt into an alternative to an existing financial system and economy that is biased against you, you are making a political statement, like it or not. So maybe the presence of Bitcoin will make it easier to discuss these inequities that are inherent in our existing financial system. Well, I think you do learn a lot about it as you learn Bitcoin. You, you can't help but also learn the other system and you can it is a really educational tool. And you heard it here first, Jay Powell for president. How was right boost in with a row of sticks? I'm not sad about localbitcoins.com. They made many mistakes, which made it hard to trade privately. Better alternatives have been around for a while. And he links us to a peer-to-peer trading exchanges list on GitHub. Thanks so much. Pal was right. That's really useful. Bisc at the top of the list right there. You know what we don't mention enough because it's not available here in the States uh, is HODL HODL, right? That's another option that feels like maybe it hits that middle ground of usability a little bit better than Bisc does, but you got to have a VPN or be outside the States. And have money outside of the States. Nomadic Coder boosts in with 1,555 sats. Thanks. I had read up on the definition of a security and you confirmed my understanding of what I read. Thanks for sending in a little value boost. Thank you. I love it when people boost it and say, hey, you were right. I can't tell what <laughs> I like more. Is it the sass or is it the affirmation? Hard, hard to decide. <laughs> Qatar comes in with a row of ducks. Even though I only understand a small portion of Jeff Snyder's podcast, I strangely enjoy hearing his thesis too. Oh boy. That is so true. Jeff is an acquired taste. It's like, okay. Jeff is sick. Okay, there is something wrong with him. He is so focused on broad economic data. He gets so deep into the numbers. You don't do that if you are well-adjusted. And I say that as someone who is not well-adjusted. So I, <laughs> I'm not attacking you, Jeff. I am 
sympathizing with your illness and i love it game recognizes game yeah i mean that's why i'm happy to promote him anywhere because the people who will listen to a torrent of jeff talking like it's so complicated to listen to him talk if for me it's like a mental exercise okay okay this is sounding kind of appealing just from just experiencing that standpoint i know jeff we're sending the traffic your way come on the podcast <laughs> Adopting Bitcoin boosts in with 4,200 sats. Nice 420 reference. Insta boost for the dad. Also, in our show notes, we still have the fundraiser for Turkish earthquake relief. If you get a chance, you can boost in there, even though the initial critical phase of rescuing people is over and, you know, many people were pulled from the rubble. They now need to be fed and housed and kept warm. It is very cold in Turkey. And actually, this earthquake also affected Syria. So we're not hearing as much discussion about the Syrian refugee situation, but it is also very critical. So FYI. Our Shackford, our Shackleford, boosts in with a row of ducks and just simply says, thanks. Well, thank you, our Shackle. RJMC32 boosts in 3,000 sats. Great podcast. And thanks for the great boost. Thank you, everybody else. We did get some boosts where there was no message, just nice meaty boosts. There are some stream sats. We had a few people streaming sats this week. Thank you very much, too, for everybody who boosts in. We really appreciate it. If you get some value from this here pod, please consider sending a boost. Also, hearing from you means a lot to us. You can send a boost in without having to switch podcast apps. You just go grab Alby at getalby.com and then head over to the podcast index. And you can top off using MoonPay in Alby directly now. Or you can upgrade to a new shiny podcasting 2.0 compatible app. Just go to newpodcastapps.com and try one out. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on February 17th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I am here today, sometimes, mostly, usually with me. Chris, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.